You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo, it's good to see you again. As usual, it's good to see you. Now, um, we are we are working with a few uh, caveats. So Massimo, despite the fact that he's in paradise, has managed to catch a slight cold. So right. we're going to work within those constraints. And Massimo's also recording with a new iPad, which explains the the angle at which, uh, right. which we're seeing him. <laughs> Although he looks good from every angle, so it's luck, fortunately for him, uh, I have to prop myself up or else I look like a beached whale. Um, uh, Massimo, today we're going to start um, talking about uh, your, your book, and this is really... Um, an unusual thing you've done, you've taken uh, what is essentially an academic book, although there has, it was in written to, intended to have some crossover uh, right. appeal for a popular audience, um, and you've decided to publish it serially. Yes. Um, so you and Dickens. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, should I not make you laugh? Is it going to be? But so you've been, and this is, you know, I'm realizing now we're now in how many, how many months are you into this now? Uh, but it's been a couple of months now, and we're almost done actually because uh, there's only another four or five install installments to come out, okay. and then uh, we're gonna be done. This was a serious undertaking, um, and I don't even want to know how hard it was to cut it up into these pieces and to sort of to. Um, but it's really, it's really amazing. I don't know that I've seen such a such a detailed, long form thing published over such a long period of time. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do a few shows on this. Um, I think probably if we do three, we can probably cover most of the really interesting stuff. Yeah, um, that's a um, and um, and so uh, today we'll get started. Now, um, the the book is called um, the title of the book is "The Nature of Philosophy: How Philosophy Makes Progress and Why It Matters." Um, and the um, You do talk a lot in the book about what philosophy is, but it it seems to me that that the, the sub secondary title is more than a secondary title. You really are interested in the question of of how philosophy makes progress. Um, right. Maybe you could talk a little bit just for a minute, just to set, to motivate these things. What, aside from your independent interest in these this question, what particularly moves you moved you to talk about uh, to write a book about philosophy and how it progresses? Oh, that's easy. Uh, that, as you know, I moved to philosophy full time uh, over the last few years uh, after a career as a biologist, as a scientist. And you know, I I moved to it without having to recall my my life story. But I moved to it because I wanted something different to do, and I always been interested and intrigued by philosophy. And so I said, ah, oh, whatever. Uh, I had the opportunity to do it, so so it, it worked out. And the first thing that struck me as very weird, was two observations, which were immediately uh, uh, apparent uh, over the, the first few months uh, that I started serving in a philosophy department. One was that a significant number of uh, scientists had what can be only described as contempt for philosophy. Now, I don't know, and maybe we'll get into this later, I don't know the statistics, I don't think there are statistics out there, so it's Probably unfair to say that the majority of scientists or a great number of scientists, but certainly a good number of contemporary high-profile scientists, especially physicists. And this also wasn't always the case because, uh, you know, there was a time at the early part of the uh, 20th century, late part of the 19th century, where both in biology and physics, you know, philosophy was held in high esteem. So this is, this is actually a late 20th century, early 21st century phenomenon and it is typical of a, a only, as far as I know, it's representative only of, of, a, of a, you know, mostly physics. Uh, but nonetheless, it struck me as very weird. Um, and the second thing that I observed, which was even more weird, is a number of philosophers joining into the fracas and, and basically shooting themselves in the foot uh, by, you know, not just criticizing their own field, which is fine, um, that's actually a, a sign of a healthy, you know, intellectual environment, but, but dismissing it or, you know, or, or basically saying, well, yeah, we should just close this, this whole thing and, and move to the sciences. So those two things struck me from the beginning 
you know, I've now been officially a philosopher, meaning that my paycheck comes from a philosophy department for more than seven years, or for a little more than seven years, which is why, of course, I'm on sabbatical right now. Yeah. And uh, and in those years, is that that thing is has stuck with me, and it's uh, at some point I said, as since I have this unusual situation, uh, sort of in, in terms of personal academic history, of actually having lived and worked. Uh, within both sides of what CPs know, famously called the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the, the two, two cultures, world, the, the two cultures, yeah, yeah, yeah. which right. we talked about, yeah, yeah, right. Then I figure, well, maybe, maybe I am actually uniquely, or if not uniquely, unusually qualified to make that sort of to write this kind of book, basically, yeah. to write a book. Uh, in a sense, it is a defense. Hold on, hold on, you're you're freezing a little bit. Uh-oh. Starting no, it's okay now. Start again. It start. It, it's certainly a defense. You were saying, it's a, it's a defense of philosophy, or even better, just an explanation of what philosophy is. In some sense, even to philosophers themselves, but mostly to outsiders, particularly uh, across the other academic fields. So let me ask you just one more thing along these lines of motivation. So, you know, you talked about attitudes within certain prom- prominent members of the scientific community, especially very public members like Lawrence Krauss and, and uh, uh, um, um, Stephen Hawking, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, then you talked also about some of the attitudes within the philosophy departments themselves, um, which, which I, I certainly see and, I, and we'll probably talk about later. Um, but there's also a third thing, and that is that sort of, the institutional jeopardy that philosophy seems to be in sure. that you and I have discussed within the academy. And is there some sense in your part that you think that this also, I'm assuming that you think that all of these are the result of people not understanding the distinctive way in which philosophy makes progress, that that's the relationship between the topic of progress and your motivations you're not just right. writing about philosophy generically. You're writing specifically about the way in which philosophy progress, progresses. Is it your impression that these negative attitudes and the institutional jeopardy philosophy finds itself in is partly due to not understanding the way in which philosophy progresses? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you why. So, I, you know, as, as you know, philosophy is classed usually among the humanities, you know, the humanistic disciplines. Yes. But it has always, I, I would maintain, uh, being a little strange uh, of a classification because philosophy certainly does have, you know, obvious humanistic components. I mean, you know, some philosophy is basically literature uh, or, or literary criticism or, you know, things like that. But since philosophy is also, you know, the mother of logic and the mother of science itself, uh, it's very close related also historically to, you know, mathematics. Think about, think about the Pythagoreans, for instance. Yeah. Then it's kind of weird because it really actually is literally it does stride you know both both areas. It's not just humanities. It's not quite a science, and I think that is why it's being singled out by the scientists because you know you never hear Stephen Hawking say, "Oh well, we should never read Shakespeare because it's useless." Right, right, right. Granted, some academic deans do that kind of you know say that kind of thing actually. Uh, but that's just because there are a bunch of ignorants uh, who, who, you know, yeah. do their own things in terms of sort of market economy or whatever the hell they think that it's good for the university. But you don't hear scientists say things like, right. you know, oh, you know, forget about literature or forget about, you know, they don't they read, su- don't read Susan Sontag on camp or something. Right. I mean, they don't. Right. They don't yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. So because they realize that. There is value. They don't. May, they may not understand it, or they may understand it. I don't know. But there is value. I mean, I'm pretty sure that uh, that people like the Grass Tyson and, and Weinberg and so on and uh, have read you know, right. Shakespeare or or, or do, do li- read literature. Right. And they've been to art. Mu- they go to art museums. They 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 listen to right. Operas. They go to art museums. Right. <laughs> they go to concerts. Yes. Right. So so nobody questions. Nobody within the academy. Uh, except for those misguided deans and provosts that I yeah. mentioned ago, questions the value of the arts and the humanities per se. But the value of philosophy, yes, it's, 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 a, it's open field. And so I wonder, you know, why is that? Why, why is it that we are not left alone, just like the musicians, the painters, you know, the writers, and so on and so forth? And I suspect, by talking to fellow you know, colleague scientists, that the reason is because we are literally seen as not doing either one of those things. Yeah. We're seen as wanting to to ape, uh, you know, the sciences, but not quite getting there. And at the same time, we're not really literature. So what the hell are we doing? 
right? And so this, and this is, and so there is a kind of an expectation that we fail to fulfill that they don't have of artists and, and pain. Because yeah, this is one of the things I'm going to want to talk to you a little bit about later. I mean, you know, we talk about progress, um, and I'm going to ask you sort of to talk a little bit about how you define progress in the book and how you assign the different kinds of progress to the different disciplines. But right. <clears throat> along the lines of the logic of what we're talking about thus far, the idea, I guess, that it's supposed to be that, well, the reason the scientists don't dismiss the arts is that they don't expect the arts to progress. Correct. Now, that's very weird to me because I think the arts definitely do progress. And so we should, when we get to talking about um, um, the different kinds of progress, maybe we'll get into that. But is that roughly what you're sort of saying? You're saying, look, the scientists have a very clear conception of progress. Philosophy doesn't fall under it, but philosophy also doesn't seem to be one of those things that they would exempt from it, right? Exactly. That's right. right. Now, now, that said, I, I'm actually not sure that the arts don't make progress. And in fact, at some point in an early incarnation of the book, which initially, by the way, the initial title for the book, the working title for the book was, Does Philosophy Make Progress? That it was much more explicit, and it was in terms of a question. Of course, it wasn't meant to be as a rhetorical question, but nonetheless. Um, but originally, one of the chapters, one or two of the chapters, actually dealt with other areas of the humanities. Uh, for instance, music uh, or, or the visual arts. The problem, and then I eventually decided to drop that because, frankly, it's so far out of my expertise that, you know, already, as we will talk about either today or in the next installments, uh, already going out of my limb talking about, you know, science, I know enough, I think. But talking about mathematics, the history of mathematics, the history of logic, that was already spreading myself as yeah, you know, yeah. thin as I could feel comfortable with. I wouldn't feel comfortable going. I, I, I had read actually quite a bit. I, I prepared for that chapter on, you know, based on the history, on you know, art history and literary criticism and all that. And I do think that actually, even since we're now talking informally in some part of the book, I do think that even in those fields, there is something analogous to a exploration of different possible different ideas in sort of a kind of logical space or, or space of possibilities, if you, if you like. I don't want to call it logical space because that sounds too formal, but a space of possibility. So, so my favorite example, which uh, I have a couple of musician friends and tell me, they tell me that, that this, this way of looking at it makes sense. Uh, my favorite example is jazz, the history of jazz. Uh, if you look at jazz from its roots in the you know, late 19th century uh, and throughout the 20th century, it explored a number of different ways, you know, musicians explored a number of different ways of, of, of doing jazz, which became progressively uh, more freeform, more, you know, independent of sort of the, the original rhythms and, 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 uh, and roots of the, of the genre. And now they seem to have now, and by now I mean the last, you know, 20 years maybe or so or more, they sort of seem to have at least temporarily exhausted that, that search. And so now we see actually going back yeah. To earlier forms, or doing some kind of you know mixing of different things uh, of different different eras of, of jazz. So that to me suggests, but I'm not enough of a, of a you know expert in musical theory to actually unequivocally state that uh, state that that even in music and similarly in art. I mean, think about the progression from you know the invention of perspective, for instance, during the Renaissance. I mean, that's that's progress if you if you think about individual arts. Right. That is definitely a revolution. That, con that constitutes the introduction of a, of a new idea and the exploration of new territories, right? But now what have we got? We got, by the 20th century, first to minimalist art and then to completely abstract art, increasingly abstract and then completely abstract art, you know, the famous gray number 25, gray yeah. number 26, and so on yeah. and so forth. Well, that to me, again, such, and, and then we're seeing now going back to sort of, if not classical, certainly a variety of different approaches to the visual arts. So that to me suggests a similar thing, that there, has, there is progress in some kind of conceptual space, but it is so far out of my expertise that yeah. I just yeah. rather not get into it in the book. All right, so let's, the reason, and the reason I said that was because there was something in the first chapter which you said about fiction, which I thought was indicating that you were suggesting that arts, the arts don't progress. But let's, let's, let's uh, not stop teasing people, um, and uh, <laughs> let's get right ahead and... Uh, <laughs> Get right ahead and talk about um, um, what you mean. What you mean by progress? I mean, in order to do what you want to do, you're going to a have to tell us what philosophy is, which right. you spend a lot of time doing, um, right. and you're also going to have to give some notion of what you mean by progress, uh, right. and then the two are going to have to sort of fit together. So, um, 
Um, let's talk first about the, what you mean by progress. So, um, in the first the first chapter of the of the book, um, you do in a sense um, you you do simply uh, give us the common usages. You, you you go to the you go to the dictionary, um, yep. and um, which as we know uh, simply records common usage, and um, you give the following two definitions of. Uh, progress. The first is um, forward or onward movement towards a destination. And the second is advancement towards a better, more complete, or more modern condition. Okay. Right. Um, and then you go on to assign these two notions of progress to different disciplines. So you, you basically say that the natural sciences... Um, progress in the manner of the, of the first the first definition. Um, um, uh, definition. Right, right. Uh, forward movement towards the destination. Yeah, in particularly physics. Okay. Because actually, one can maybe maybe we get into this, but maybe uh, one can actually make a distinction. As as you know, we do agree that there is a, uh, an interesting distinction between fundamental physics and the so-called special sciences, which is basically right. everything else. So in the cases of special sciences, one can actually say that they may fall into either one or a combination of those, of those definitions. But in the case of fundamental physics, you know, the physicists themselves tell you that they are after a goal. They are after the, you know, what they call the theory of everything, the final theory of everything. Now, what they mean by it and how they're going to get there, that's a different issue. But they clearly have a goal. They, they seem to have a very specific goal in mind, which is a fundamental understanding of all the laws of nature, where they're coming from, and why the universe is structured the way it is. But is, is that? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to get us too scattered by arguing each point as we go along. But I just want to be clarified. Is that not also true? Let's say of biology. I mean, isn't biology? I mean, the, the genome project, all this sort of stuff, isn't ultimately what biology is interested in. Is, unlocking the secret of what life consists of, where it come, how it comes to be, um, all those <laughs> right. manifestations. Exactly, which is why I, I actually put initially, uh, or in the book, I put all the natural sciences in that, in that basket. But one can also argue that unlike fundamental physics, uh, the rest of the sciences, including actually non-fundamental physics, including other areas of physics, are actually going, yes, they're going after individual projects like the Human Genome Project or whatever it is. And you can say, yeah. The, the That's kind of a theory of everything for, for right. life, isn't it? Well, yes. Um, Genetics, ultimately. Right. And you can say that, you know, that's an ultimate goal, sort of, you know, understanding life uh, in, all, in all its diversity. But in fact, in its origin and its diversity. But in fact, the more biology progresses, the more actually you see splintering of goals and an expansion mm. of of different disciplines and subdisciplines that sort of spin out of each of each other, right? So genetics didn't exist until the beginning of the ninth, of the twentieth century, and then now it's it's major uh, a major component of what it means to be biology. Uh, but evolutionary biology, of course, was introduced by Darwin in the in the nineteenth mid nineteenth century, and now it's its own huge branch. So one can argue both ways. One can say, yeah, but all of this is actually under the umbrella of understanding life. Fine. If you want to stay to, with, with that sort of general uh, level of description, that's true. But it's also true historically. And this, this is, of course, Fodder's, Fodder's, uh, Jerry Fodder's point about the, the special sciences, that they actually keep you know, spinning out new and new stuff. And the, the more they progress, the more actually they divide themselves up into a bunch of other different things. So in that sense... One can equally reasonably, I think, say that biology, psychology, geology, and so on and so forth are actually uh, in the business of increasing our understanding of whatever their subject matter is. In this case, in the case of biology, you know, the the, the living world. But they do so by expanding, not by focusing, not not by narrowing everything down to a, a single equation, which is, on the other hand, the co the goal in, in fundamental physics. Okay. So 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 physics so. so Let's just, for the for the sake of um, 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 tidiness, just let's 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 not be so precise. And let's say, okay, the natural sciences roughly are going to fall under this first definition: forward or onward movement towards a destination, right. with with the understanding that maybe um, they also may uh, could be described as uh, fulfilling the second definition. The second definition being advancements toward a better, more complete, or more modern condition, which right. you then assign to logic, mathematics. And ultimately, will assign to philosophy. Right. Um, and before before you go on to do that, let me just ask you one more thing, and that is, um, 
I noticed that the social sciences are omitted from this sorting. Where did you imagine them? First of all, did you omit them on purpose? Um, um, are, the, are they going to play some role later? Or um, do, you, do you see them fitting into either of these? Or do you think they don't fit into either of these? Or where do the social sciences go in the I, map? That's a great question. I left them out on purpose. And again, in the, in the early version of the book, in the, in the first draft of the book, <clears throat> there actually was a chapter on the social sciences, particularly focused on economics. But for the same, but I dropped it for the same reason that I dropped the one on, on so the, the humanities more, more broadly construed, because I simply don't feel confident enough. You know, I, I read a lot of stuff, but I don't feel confident enough to actually uh, write in detail about that. Uh, so I left it out. But one reason that makes, one thing that makes the social sciences a weird thing is that I think one can make a reasonable argument that they're actually a combination of humanities and social science, and, sorry, and natural sciences. Um, this, this, this point was brought home to me by a colleague of mine at City College uh, last semester before going on sabbatical. I taught a new course on epistemology across the curriculum where we looked at, at, at the uh, epistemological aspects of different disciplines all the way from the natural sciences to the social sciences to uh, even the, the, the humanistic disciplines, right? And this colleague of mine uh, came to give a uh, talk to my class uh, about uh, basically sociology and, and sociological history, right? And he said explicitly, he said, you know, we, we, we fancy ourselves, we think of ourselves as a science. We, we aim to be a natural science. We like to be a natural science. But at the same time, it is impossible. And, and he said, and I'm fine with that, meaning that we want to import all of the quantitative aspects, all of the modeling aspects, if possible, if they work, from the natural sciences. But at the same time, there is an irreducible human aspect to it, uh, an aspect of narrative. He was giving the example, for instance, of colonialism, right? And he said, okay, you can describe colonialism, the phenomenon of colonialism, in terms of figures and numbers and facts and you know, in a, in a very sort of uh, third-person scientific way of doing things. But you're missing part of the picture. What are you missing? Well, you're missing the first-person account of people who lived either under uh, or, or were actually on the other side of the colonialist divide. And he showed example after example. And he said, look, if you don't read biographies of these people, if you don't read what they had to say about it, you're just missing something fundamental to understand yeah. what colonialism was about. Yeah. Which to him uh, meant that you know sociology in that sense or sociological history was actually this weird combination of natural sciences and humanities. And I bought, I think, at least provisionally, that kind of description, which meant that I left it out of the book, at least in part because that would complicate things even further. And I, 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 as you know, the book is long as it, as it yeah. is. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. And I don't mind. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with dealing with a, sim a simplified domain of, of, of things. I just, for my own clarification, wanted to know uh, how you right. saw that. Um, so... Maybe um, talk a little bit about the way in which you see logic and mathematics, and let's leave philosophy out for a minute. How you see logic and mathematics fulfilling the second definition, advancements right. towards a better, more complete, or more modern condition. Right. So there is, it, that classification struck me, initially sort of, it was an intuitive thing. I mean, I looked at what mathematicians and logicians are doing. I'm more familiar with what logicians are doing than mathematicians because, of course, I'm in a philosophy department, so I talk to logicians, and I studied logic at the graduate level. I studied mathematics only at the undergraduate level. But I had colleagues, of course, in mathematics, you know, and so we talk, and, and, I, and I read a few things. And so in, initially, when I started reading a book, I had this intuition that logic and mathematics were going to be closer on, on the spectrum of sort of different types of progress to what I think philosophy does, than to the natural sciences. Then I started reading the actual literature, uh, particularly on the history of both logic and mathematics, because the approach that I talk in the book, as, you, as you've seen, is in terms of, uh, of logic and mathematics, is a historical one. I think that it makes sense, if you're talking about progress, to say, well, all right, these things started out with you know, Pythagoras and Aristotle and things like that, So, and now we are, here we are with Fermat's last theorem on the one hand, and, you know, sort of... Um, and, and, and um, multimodal logics and things like that. So how do we get here from there? And it turns out that there seems to be a pretty good agreement among mathematicians and especially historians of mathematics of how they got there. And there are parallels, there are very deep parallels between mathematics and logic. 
maybe the first thing to do would be actually to see, to talk about a little bit if, whether there is a distinction between the two or not, because in law, some people, including some professionals, actually do think that mathematics is a kind of logic or the other way around. I thought that that, I thought that, that, was, that, that was sort of dropped when the Logisys program failed. In other words, the notion that you could reduce your mathematics to pure statements of mathematics to purely logical statements, I thought that that was chucked after the Frege slash Russell Whitehead program flopped. Right, right. To some extent, that's true. Except that, um, you know, one of the things, one of the articles that I that I mentioned in the in the chapter on on the distinction between logic and mathematics, right at the beginning of that chapter, actually says, well, that depends on what you mean by logic. If by logic you mean the kind of very you know formal strict approach that Frege and Russell and all that were using, then sure, of course, that, we, that, that project of reducing mathematics to logic is gone. It's done, and, it, and the, the, the final word there was um, uh, uh, you know, Godel's theorems. Yeah. And, um, but you can also talk about logic in a sort of more informal way as a, as a, as a particular type of reasoning mm. about you know, certain kinds of problems, in which case mathematics, one can make an argument, is a type of logic, not in the sense that it's reducible to it. I think it's more likely, it's more sensible to think of mathematics and logic as very closely allied disciplines, both of which use, you know, sort of symbology and, and formalism um, in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And in both cases, what they want to accomplish is entirely independent of empirical evidence. It is... Even though very likely, and surely, mathematics and probably also logic did start out historically uh, out of sort of empirical facts, right? I mean, we, are, we have a capability to, you know, to, to, to count things, for instance, yeah. or to, to, to uh, notice the shapes of, of different shapes of things from which geometry came from. I and mean, there's no question that in historical terms, very early on, mathematics and probably logic uh, were, were a way of, of dealing with practical problems. Right, like counting or, or or dividing up geometrical shapes and things like that, but it very quickly that very quickly you know was superseded by this ability of both fields to internally generate their own problems, which is why I think they're very different from science. Science's problems are posed from the outside. Uh, in the sense, uh, I mean, on on the one hand, they're they're trivially internally generated because it's scientists who decide what to yeah, work on, yeah. work. but non-trivially. It is nature itself that poses the problem. Right? So there is there is such a thing as natural laws, or so we think. Well, where did that come, they come from? Uh, there is such a thing as you know certain astronomical phenomena or certain biological phenomena. Well, those are problems right. that are posed from the outside. Those are not internal inventions of the field. Right. In the case of mathematics, there is no such thing as you know multidimensional solids or or hyperplanes or um, you know Fermat's last theorems out there. Yeah. Right. Even if you're a Platonist, which I happen not to be, yeah. a mathematical Platonist, but even if you are a mathematical Platonist, they're not out there in the same sense in which empirical facts are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same goes for logic. You know, it's not like when you start talking about fuzzy logic or deontic logic or, you know, uh, dialectism, all these, the, these sort of things. Those are answers to internally generated problems. Let's take dialectism, which is, uh, you know, this, this sort of... Um, interesting new type of, of uh, approach to logic which deals with with paradoxes right so this idea that typical classical paradoxes in uh, which when I, when they're stated in uh, classical logic which of course there's only two modalities yes or no two or false uh, then you come up with these paradoxes where the answer doesn't seem to be either yes or no right right uh, so you have you know the liars paradox you know things like that yeah well um, one way to deal with it, with, with this, according to some modern logicians, um, including some colleagues actually at the CUNY Graduate Center that I have, um, is to actually bite the bullet and say, okay, well, we create a new type of logical system that actually has not just two possible answers, two possible um, you know, modes, but it has uh, you know, both or neither, for yeah. instance. Yeah. And it turns out that once you do that, then all sorts of interesting properties come out of these kinds of systems. Now, there's no sense in which this is a reaction to a problem posed by the outside world. Yeah, yeah. The paradoxes are themselves, you know, uh, uh, results of human imagination. We yeah. think about liar's paradox. It's not out there in any, in any physical system that I'm aware of. So in that sense, I mean that both logic and mathematics do respond to largely to internally generated problems. Now, there is, of course, the uh -huh. obvious 
uh, observation that yes, but then it turns out that from time to time, both logic and mathematics have incredibly stunning applications to the real world, right? I mean, obviously, mathematics is useful to science, to natural science, and and uh, logic is used used both in the uh, natural sciences and, of course, in computer science, right? But that's, I think, a different question. That is a, a question of mapping domains. So I think we have two significantly distinct approaches to different kinds of problems, the natural sciences, in particular physics on the one hand, and logic and mathematics on the other. And then it turns out that there is an interesting subset of the problems of the latter, of, of logic and mathematics, that actually maps very nicely with the problems of the former, of, with the problems of natural science. And of course, that's, you know, the answer to why that is the case depends on whether you are a mathematical Platonist or not. It depends on, you know, uh, the concept of evocation that I, that I, Use in the book, as you know, I'm which fine. we haven't got, which I'm going to, which is the well, next we'll thing get, we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, let me ask you just while we're on this, um, you know, and, and I don't, I guess I don't expect that the the two definitions are going to perfectly neatly fit the, the, the sciences on the one hand and the, we already right. saw with the sciences, you said that there's ways you might look at the sciences in which they satisfy the second definition. And I'm wondering with respect to the latter, whether there's ways in which they also satisfy the first. So here's what I have in mind. Now, I was, now maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, I, I certainly know a lot less about science than you or probably most people. But I was under the impression that part of the motivation, the impetus for the development of non-Euclidean geometries was relativistic physics. And I was also under the impression that some of the reason, motivation for developing multivalent logics was because of quantum mechanics. Is that not well, the case? Yeah, so historically it's not quite actually that, that clear cut. It's certainly the case that non-Euclidean geometries have been used uh, and, and have a huge application in relativity. It's also the case that non-classical logics have used in quantum mechanics. But actually, quantum mechanics, I think the, the, the case of quantum mechanics is more clear. Uh, Non-classical logics are still insufficient to deal with quantum mechanical phenomena. Okay. They were developed before quantum mechanics or independently of quantum mechanics toward the end of the 19th century. Um, it is true, however, that logicians are in fact working on basically quantum kind of logics, which are inspired by natural, by, by, by actual world, you know, empirical, empirical data. But I think of that as simply a recurrence of what happened at the beginning of these fields where, you know, geometry, plane geometry was inspired by the fact that people had to divide up their, their fields uh, in some way and they invented that. But then after that, all, all sorts of interesting properties uh, that, you know, like the, the Euclidean theorem and all that sort of stuff, um, the, the whole of Euclidean geometry expanded very quickly, yeah, way yeah. beyond what was actually necessary for practical Yeah, I see the way in which it generates its own problems once it gets going, but I just was sort of wondering whether it also does piggyback on the kind of progress that science makes. I mean, you know, we find out from Einstein that space doesn't consist of Euclidean planes. Space is actually curved and malleable. Well, now we have to chuck all these geometrical axioms that we used to hold, right? Um, right. And in that sense, it looks like it's almost uh, a posteriori, right? Um, um, to yeah. a certain degree, right? Right. I can see what you're saying, but but notice the difference. So, even though there is there is debate about this, I think it is fairly clear to me that even after uh, general relativity, let's say, right, it doesn't make any sense to say that let's say Euclidean geometry is quote unquote wrong. Euclidean geometry just is. Right, it's, right, right, right. It's true of the space it imagines. It's just that that's not exactly. the space that we actually live in. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> so and say is right or wrong, you can say actually that it's useful or not useful. And it turns out actually that Euclidean geometry is still very much useful for all sorts of practical applications that don't involve, you know, relativistic uh, situations. It is also true that non-Euclidean geometries are, uh, you know, useful for other things. But it wouldn't make any sense to say, well, is it, Euclidean geometries or non-Euclidean geometries that are true? Well, right. what does that mean? Right. The, the question you can ask is, are they consistent? Are they interestingly developed? Are they you yeah. know, complex? Are they elegant? You can ask all sorts of those questions, but you cannot ask yeah. whether they're true or not. On the other hand, in the natural sciences, you can ask whether it is true that the planets go around the sun or the other way around. Right. There, is a, there is an actual answer to that, and that's the end of the story. Right. You know, it's not a, well, it depends. Right. So... We have this distinction between the two kinds of progress 
um, um, forward or onward moving towards a destination, advancements toward a better, more complete or modern condition. Um, we've roughly sorted the natural sciences as progressing in the first sense. Logic and mathematics were leaving philosophy out for a second in the second sense, right. with the acknowledgement that this isn't perfectly airtight. Um, and I gather that the reason for this sorting, the reason why the sciences fulfill the first sort of progress and the logic and mathematics the same is because of the kinds of facts that they that they deal with. And so you then make this further distinction between sort of what what I would characterize as discoverable facts, right, right. about the world, um, as opposed to what you want to call evoked facts. Um, right. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see that distinction and how that then determines why the sciences progress in this way and logic and mathematics progress in the second way. Right. So this is not my um, uh, invention. This is actually Lee Smolin's uh, contribution. He's, he's a physicist, a theoretical physicist, who, however, is very much interested in philosophical issues, particularly as, as it uh, pertains to the nature of time. And so he wrote this book uh, that we talked about probably in, in the past. We have, uh, yeah. With, um, uh, with philosopher Unger and um, about the nature of time. And at some point, uh, Smalling approaches the issue of mathematical Platonism, right? Uh, because he, he has a reason for that. I mean, it's not just because he's curious. Uh, it's because, um, let's, let's step back for a second, because I actually do think this is not just pertinent to my uh, project, but it's also, you know, it's sort of inherently interesting. So Smalling's project basically is outside of the mainstream of physics at the moment. And it is that he doesn't believe, he doesn't buy into the Einsteinian view of the world that time is just another dimension of space-time, which is what the, the, the uh, equations of general relativity actually tell you, right? And the reason he doesn't buy them, doesn't buy that, well, there's a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because um, if that were the case, then you would have to be able to move back and forth in time just in the same way in which you're moving back and forth in space because from the point of view of the, of the equations of general relativity and in fact from the point of view of the equations of quantum mechanics there is no direction of time there's there's no you know the, the, the equations are completely neutral in that sense but Smolin says yeah but time exists you know we got to deal with it you know tough uh, if, if Einstein says you know it cannot deal with it that means that just means that the, that general relativity is incomplete it's not wrong but it's just incomplete and so he wants to, to, to uh, build a different understanding of time. Now, in order to do that, he has to attack what he sees as the um, uh, widespread mathematical Platonism or dependence on mathematics than physici physics uh, has today. Right? It's clear and nobody doubts that mathematics is incredibly useful for physics. But basically, Smolin is arguing that the, the physicists got a little too complacent with mathematics, so that if math tells them something, like time has two directions, um, they are actually willing to drop the empirical data, which show that clearly time doesn't have uh, two directions, it flows in one direction only. They drop the empirical data and basically bow to the power of mathematics, right? So now in order to, to, to reject that, he has to come up with some kind of, of argument against mathematical uh, Platonism or against buying these the, into these uh, universal truth that somehow supersede, uh, you know, physical physical truths, and the way he does well, that is the way, is, yeah. the, is the reason why he has to go because this is not obvious. The reason why, in order to do what he wants to do, he has to go after mathematical Platonism is because <laughs> mathematical Platonism represents mathematics as being factual in a way that it really isn't. Right. Correct. Okay. Correct. Go on then. Yes. Yes. Yeah, please. Thank you. That's yes. right. That, that bit was missing. Yeah. So that's right. Now, but in order to do that, he has to provide some kind of a of different account. A fact, uh, different kinds of facts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Facts, right? Now, the typical accounts, the two major accounts, broadly speaking, I mean, there's a number of them, but they fall into two categories, uh, uh, the, the, the two philosophical accounts, of, or, uh, if you want, the two metaphysical accounts of mathematics. One is Platonism, according to which you know, mathematical facts are real, as in they are mind-independent. You know, the, 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 the Pythagorean theorem or the last, uh, last Fermat uh, theorem, they are actually true regardless of whether anybody can think that they're true, 
right? Now, to most people, that seems weird. It's like, what do you mean? Those are, you know, it's not, it's like, it's almost like treating mathematical objects as if they really were planets and stars and galaxies and things like that, right? Those are clearly mind independent, unless you're an idealist. Um, and uh, um, so mathematical planets tend to move mathematics in that direction. And that's, uh, in, in Smolin's view, that's, that's a problem because it leads to that kind of, of issues that we, we talked about a minute ago. The other approach is sort of a constructivist approach in mathematics uh, or, or you know, a nominalist approach in mathematics. It's, and basically says, no, look, mathematics is just a human invention um, and it's completely arbitrary and, you know, it, and it's, you know, it wouldn't exist outside of human minds or, or similar, similar kinds of minds. And therefore, there's no fact of the matter. There's no truth out there to be sought in terms of mathematics. It's just a tool. It's, it turns out to be useful for the kind, certain kinds of things we do, but that's about it. Smalling, I think, is right. Regardless of what I, one thinks that his particular answer, to which we'll get in a minute, is in fact on, on the right track or not, but I think that he's right in rejecting both of those. Yeah, uh, the second seems far too strong also. I mean, it's strong right. in the other direction, yeah. Yeah, and man, this is a problem. This is a, this is an issue that in the philosophy of mathematics has been going on for a long time because there are actually fairly strong arguments, but also very large weaknesses on both camps, right? So the the mathematical Platonists will say, well, how else would you explain the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics? I mean, it's like it 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 would be a miracle if yeah. there were no mathematical facts, and all of a sudden you find out the mathematicians have been going on for decades, sometimes centuries, working in a certain direction, and then it turns out that oh. Gosh, the universe is actually made like that. Right, right. Wow, what a what a coincidence! Now, if it happens one, maybe it's a, maybe it's a coincidence. But the history of it works a lot. It works yeah, a lot. it happens a lot. <laughs> so, you know, once it's a coincidence, two, you gotta start thinking about it. If it is hundreds of times, they say, okay, this, is, this is not, can't be anything other than a miracle. So that's the, that's one of the main arguments by uh, mathematical Platonists. But the arguments on the other side, on the sort of nominalist side, is like, okay, dude, but but now you are actually conjuring up some really weird uh, ontology of these mathematical objects, and you you don't have an explanation of how we have access to that realm, you know, yeah. separate realm of, of mathematics. I mean, you know, we, we know how we have access, we gain access, in, as imperfect as it is, to the physical world. You know, we have the five, you know, the five senses, actually, recently, people have been arguing that we have a lot more than five senses, but whatever, the, the, the senses that we have, and then we augment those senses by way of sophisticated, you know, scientific instrumentation. But what the hell do you think mathematics, you know, how do we get access to yeah. this realm out there? So those are both good arguments. It kind of sort of basically cancel each other out and say, ah, okay, so now we got something weird. We got good arguments and, and bad and bad big holes on both sides. So what, what uh, Smalling came up with was, well, wait a minute. There are actually other categories. There are other possibilities. He says, in fact, there are, other, there are two other possibilities other than Platonism and sort of nominalism. Uh, one is what he calls uh, fictional situations. Um, and then another one is these, these evoked uh, uh, situations. Okay, so there are certain things that we really, truly seem to make up out of whole cloth. Like one of my favorite, you know, fictional characters, Sherlock Holmes. It's not out there. Nobody would presumably be Platonist about Sherlock Holmes. It's you know, it, it's a particular invention of a particular human mind. Although I, I, I hate to disappoint you, but I mean, there is quite a number of theories and, and aesthetics of both of, of, of ontology and, for example, uh, literary objects are often treated platonically as are musical compositions precisely because they're repeatable in a right. way that a painting is not, right? So a painting is taken as a concrete object, but you know, if right. I burn all the copies of, of, of uh, Sound and the Fury, I haven't right. destroyed Sound and the Fury, the novel, right? The no in, in other words, you know, it can be reproduced, right? And, and, and you know, you can, <laughs> That's right. And I can perform Shakespeare's The Tempest in five different places. You know, five different people can True. perform the same play. So I'm not suggesting that the Platonist view is correct, but no, I'm no. saying it's not a crazy view. In, in the ontology of some of the fine arts, is right. what I'm saying. It's not, right. an it's not an indefensible view. I still think it's close. No, to I don't think it's right either. But I don't. But it is but, hard to explain how a fictional object is different from, let's say, a painting, without agreed. invoking something like that. Agreed. Yeah, but let's yeah. let's stick for a second with with Smalling's. That's fine. That's fine. Well, yeah. 
you know, look, uh, Sherlock Holmes did not exist before Conan Doyle thought about it. Agreed. And, agreed. And yeah. in fact, if we wiped out entirely, uh, you know, all not only all of the books by Sherlock about Sherlock Holmes, but all the hard drives and all the memories of anything, you know, the theater performance and everything. Well, then it's arguable that Sherlock Holmes will never exist again because it would be very hard to imagine somebody would come up with exactly the sort of same kind of characteristics. So it's an invention of the it's a true invention of the human mind. But Smolin says there are other things that just don't seem to fit like that. Take for instance a, uh, a game like chess, right? Now chess, of course, is in some sense is an invention of the human mind. I mean, the, the, the rules are arbitrary, right? But those rules, once that they're put into place, once that they're arbitrarily put into place by a human being or, or a number of human beings, uh, they constrain the system, in this particular case, the game, in a way that is nowhere even close to the way in which Conan Doyle uh, constrained Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you can do almost what you, whatever you like with Sherlock Holmes. Not quite, because, you know, it still has to be a detective, I suppose, and still sort of be in London and whatever it is. But the, the canon, the, the, the non-official canon of Sherlock Holmes stories shows you just how flexible uh, this thing is. You can, you can move it to contemporary London, as it's been done with the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, BBC series. You can move it back in time, but in a completely different manner, like the Robert Downey Jr. movies. Uh, you can do all sorts of stuff and still call it Sherlock Holmes. People will recognize it as Sherlock Holmes, but there are really very few constraints on how you do that. On the other hand, once you set down the rules of chess, not only what you can do with those rules is highly constrained. I mean, you, you cannot move the king by two steps. That's it. End of story, because that's a violation of the, of the rules. You have to change the rules if you want to do that. But if you stay within the rules, you can't do that. But more importantly... Once the rules are set, you can actually demonstrate mathematical, logical theorems about chess that you simply cannot imagine demonstrating for a fictional character like Sherlock Holmes, right? Uh, okay. So the idea, and he calls, and, and uh, Smalling calls these things, these, these properties evoked, meaning <coughs> that they are initially arbitrary. You start with axioms, with assumptions that are arbitrary. But once they are evoked, once they're put in place, uh, they really highly constrain the system in, in very specific ways. And the idea that he proposes is the mathematics is evoked. It's neither platonic, it's neither the result of Platonism, you know, the search for platonic uh, uh, forms, nor is it constructed, you know, uh, uh, in an anomalous fashion. It is evoked in this sense. The axioms are arbitrary, sure. But once you get those axioms down, let's, say, let's take um, uh, Euclidean geometry, right? Once you get those axioms down, you can demonstrate all sorts of other things that rigorously and inevitably, because that's the key word here, both rigorously and inevitably follow from those axioms. Now, you can say, but I can change the axioms. Sure. In which case, you're going to be able to demonstrate other things that also, and that's what happened when you move from Euclidean geometry to non-Euclidean geometry, right? You change some of the axioms, you drop some of the axioms, you introduce new ones, and now what you get, the result, the game, so, so to speak, that you get, it's a wholly different game, but it's also highly constrained, and, and there are also all sorts of interesting properties that can be rigorously demonstrated about that system. Okay, let me, I'm going to push on this a little bit, not much, but a little bit, um, because, you know, to push on it too much is going to take us off uh, uh, off the track, and I want to I want to work through the book as you wrote it. Um, um, but I do want to push on this a little bit. Um, um, the the examples you gave strike me as I, I wonder whether it doesn't have more to do with whether canons are enforced or not. In other words, in other words, um, you came up with the example of Sherlock Holmes. I'll come up with another example: uh, Star Trek. Now there, the canons are very rigorously enforced to the point to which. If you try to write a Star Trek novel and submit it to the publisher, it's right. got to go through um, a, a canonicity process that ensures yeah. that it doesn't violate the internal rules of Star Trek. Um, right. There are developments within the Star Trek universe that are rule-governed. For example, there are languages that people right. learn and speak. You can speak Klingon incorrectly, right? You can't just speak in any way you want. That's Similarly, right. on the other side, with let's say games like chess or like baseball, um, um, these games are governed by bodies 
that do have the ability to change the rules of the game, and indeed the games have not remained the same over time. And so I guess I'm not really seeing the kind difference. What I'm seeing is a difference that depends mostly upon the extent to which whatever the governing bodies are decide to enforce canonicity or not. Could you explain maybe a little more deeply the difference that you see, those, given those, that fact? Yeah, those are very good examples. Uh, but I do think that Smolin's distinction is resistant to those kind of uh, counterexamples in this sense. Look, first of all, um, this is a discussion that we have, especially on, on my blog, as you know, on Plato's Footnote, with other people a lot. Um, whenever I want to make distinctions, somebody wants to make, you know, to say, well, it's all the same stuff. Uh, and and I'm not wedded. I hope I'm not just doing that. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. But, yeah, but what I want to say is I'm not wedded to sharp distinctions that is it okay here's category one over here category two over there as far as i'm concerned in fact that's that's the idea the metaphor that i pursue in the rest of the book is one of a landscape with a number of peaks that sort of grade into each other right a number of intellectual peaks if you like that grade into each other so um so if we if we want to say look there is no clear-cut sharp distinction between evoked um, systems and just invented systems. I'm, I'm okay with that. As long as we agree, however, that there is enough of a distinction that really chess is in fact different even from Star Trek. And let me let me tell you, let me, let me try to explain why. So it is true that there is a body of governance of Star Trek or whatever it is that, you know, does or does not allow certain things to happen. But what that body allows, it's largely a matter of the taste of that body. Uh, like, for instance, in, uh, in one of the Star Trek, recent Star Trek movies, all of a sudden we wiped out the original uh, universe by essentially destroying Vulcan. Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah. So now I, would, I can imagine people sitting down when this was proposed and say, okay, are we going to do this or are we not going to do this? And that choice was purely a matter of taste. There wasn't any constraint imposed by the system that said, oh, no, no, you absolutely cannot do that sort of thing. On the other hand, if you want to show that a certain, let's say, the Pythagorean system is wrong, right? Um, you, we really have to change the axioms. You cannot do it from within the system. Oh, no, I agree with that. System, I agree with that. But, right. but, but if I want to add a designated hitter rule to baseball for the American League, you can do that. But how is that different from what the Star Trek people do? Well, I think it's more similar to what the, the mathematicians do because you can add an, ac an axiom. Uh, let's say to a system or or logicians too. You can add. If I want in the book at some point, I show uh, uh, what I thought was really interesting uh, uh, <clears throat> logical connections, so to speak, metalogical connections between different types of logic. Uh, you can, as it turns out, once you get into multimodal logic, you can derive all sorts of interesting additional logics like the ontic logic and so on and so forth by just adding one or another axiom. And somebody, I forgot the name of the, of the author, actually came up with this diagram that's published in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that actually shows all, all these, these connections. Now, those connections to me are like are things like, uh, to use Dan Dan's phrase, the difference between uh, chess and schmess, right? Schmess is just like chess, but the, but the king does move by two, uh, right. two squares. You're, you're changing the rules, or like your example of baseball, right? So you're changing the rules, uh, but once you change the rules, of course, there are different things you can do, and there are other things that maybe you were able to do before, and you you cannot do early, uh, you know, any, anymore. Uh, but the point is that it's a question of just how rigid the system is. Sports, by the way, uh, is is interesting that that uh, Smolin didn't pick sports as an example. Because you think that that's kind of in between. It's nebul yeah, nebulous. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the baseball example sounds a lot like the Star Trek example and less like the the, the Euclidean right. geometry example. Um, let me ask you one more thing, and I think probably we'll have to draw because I know you have to go out to dinner. Um, 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 and it's actually a good place for us to stop because then we'll start it on philosophy next time. Um, the last thing I want to ask is, okay, let's say I, I accept this notion of evocation, right? So we have a distinction between discoverable facts and evoked facts. And let's leave out invented facts, invention, uh, uh, for the sake of simplicity. Um, right. The whole idea, part of the idea was supposed to be that, well, you know, we want to get away from mathematical Platonism because it gives a kind of a factuality to mathematics that it doesn't have, and then science gets led around by the nose by the mathematicians and gets into all sorts of weirdness. 
um, that, right. that is untestable, like string theory. Um, right. um, but you know, we don't want we don't want to be fictionalist about it because then we can't explain why the hell mathematics is so successful and useful. I don't understand. Maybe you can explain how the evocation treatment of mathematics helps in that regard because all that the evocation does is suggest that there are certain kinds of inventions that then become rule-governed in a way that they can't just be sort of willy-nilly pulled. But how does that explain? How does the fact that an invention becomes rule-governed explain why it maps onto the real world so well? Right. Now, in that, at that level, we need to abandon the, the analogy of chess or, or any other game and just talk about mathematics and logic. And it is a great question. I mean, I, 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 this, this is definitely an interesting question uh, for, for both epistemologists, I think, and, and metaphysicians. But I think that, that um, uh, Smalling, Smalling's point, with which I agree, is the following. He says, okay, so now what we have is a universe out there, which is uh, amenable to empirical investigation, right? That's what science does. And if there is one thing that seems to be true of the universe is that it's logically coherent. There's, there's, there are no, there's, there's nothing in the universe that happens that, that seems to violate any basic laws of logic. It's, it's a coherent system. It's an understandable system. That's true with quantum mechanics? Yes. Once you get into those rules, yes. Okay, go on. You, know, you, you have to use certain particular kinds of rules. But even so, you know, it's very consistent. Quantum mechanics is even more consistent, if anything. Okay, go on. Because you you can make predictions at a very, very high level of, of uh, precision, right? So it seems like, for whatever reason, which we will leave unaddressed at the moment, uh, the universe itself seems to be logically coherent. It's, it's not, it doesn't admit of incoherences. Now, if that's the case, then Smolin says, one can argue that that's why mathematics and or logic are occasionally very useful to science because the universe as it actually exists is a subset of all possible mathematically coherent universes. If you're a Platonist, like Max Tegmark is, for instance, the mathematician, you would say, aha, therefore, all of these other universes exist as well. <clears throat> but if you are into, you know, if you buy the idea of an evocation, then you say, no, my friend, what happens is that there is an infinite number of mathematically consistent in your, uh, universes, and one happens to exist. And what distinguishes mathematics from physics is precisely the fact that the business of physics is to find out the one, that one. And there's no way to find out that one just doing mathematics, because mathematics, you know, in a sense, the way that I, that I so conceptualize it for myself is that mathematics massively underdetermines physics. Right. So, as you know, in philosophy of science, there's this idea that scientific theories themselves sometimes at least underdetermine the empirical evidence, meaning yeah. that the empirical evidence is compatible with more than one idea. Right. right. One, one theory. When in which case all you, you only have two options. Either you are at least provisionally agnostic about which theory is going to be the correct one uh, or you're going to wait until. No, you're going to seek until more evidence comes to, to distinguish right. one from the other because it's not an indeterminacy situation, it's an underdetermination situation. Exactly, right. it's an underdetermination. Right. Now, the idea here that Smolin has is that uh, logic and mathematics massively underdetermine the world as it is because there's only one universe. They, he doesn't believe in the multiverse. He says that's math, that's metaphysical speculation. In fact, that's one of his examples. Of the result happened. of mathematics having excessive influence over philosophy, over over science. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now he doesn't say, of course, we know that there is no such thing as a multiverse. He just says that's not a scientific idea because you got there by math, by way of mathematics. <clears throat> right. And all that mathematics does is describe these possible logical spaces. But there's a lot of possible logical spaces, and there's only one actual world, right? Exactly. <laughs> there is an if, even though there are logical spaces that are incoherent, and therefore they cannot physically exist, assuming the axiom that I, that I mentioned a minute ago, that the, universe, the actual universe is, in fact, mathematically and logically coherent. Let's assume that for a second, right? Um, if, you, if you assume that, it is true that there, are, there is an infinite number of uh, systems that universes that cannot exist because they would involve mathematical or physical, uh, or sorry, or logical inconsistencies. But there is still an infinite number of universes that could exist, yeah. 
because of course there are different degrees of infinities, you know, different ranks of infinities. And the business of science is to go after only one. But if each, this is what I still don't understand, and I'm wondering whether there has to be some sort of, I mean, each of those mathematical possibilities is evoked, right? And yes. so how does evocation explain the matching of any of them with the actual world? In other, in other words, if evocation starts just like fiction does, and yeah. is distinguished from fiction only by the fact that rules that emerge, right. then I don't understand why evocation in mathematics or logic explains why it fits the world so well in this particular case. Um, let me go back to chess at this point. Um, so I think that it, it may be misleading, and maybe I wrote it that way, and so it's my fault. But it may be misleading to say that it's about one has rules and the other one doesn't have rules. It's about the rigidity resulting from those rules. Because as you pointed out, in the case of Star Trek, you know, there are rules, quote unquote, meaning there are things that fans agree and writers agree to respect. Uh, and those are in fact rules, right? But those rules are not rigid. They don't determine in a rigid way what happens to the system. The rules of chess, on the other hand, unless you change them, are in fact rigid. So, uh, so the example to answer your question would be this. Uh, there is an infinite number of configurations of, uh, of chess pieces, you know, uh, uh, chess games. There's an infinite number of chess games that you can possibly play, or very, very, very high number of, of chess games you can play. But if you want to understand a particular game, let's say that you want to understand, you know, the game that was played last, uh, last year in the final of the World <clears throat> Championship, then that game represents reality as it actually occurred, Right. Those two players didn't play any of the other really, really, really large number of games. They played that one. But the reason you understand what, that, what happened, and you can actually describe it, you can even explain why one uh, player lost and the other one won, you know, why a particular move was a good move and turned out to be a winning one and so on and so forth, is because those things are derived in a rigid way from the system of rules. But the system of rules massively underdetermines that particular game. So the, in the analogy there, and of course, like all analogies, it's imperfect, right? But the analogy that I'm trying to draw here is the rules of chess as equivalent to all the axioms in mathematics and a particular game of chess that actually happened as equivalent to the particular universe that actually exists. In both cases, there is a massive underdetermination of one by the other. And you can say, oh, no. It wasn't just that particular game that was played. Infinite number of games were, were, were played. And we just happened to observe this one. And that would be weird. Right? Yeah. But isn't it the case that um, if there are infinitely many possible fictions, right? Now, presumably, one of those possible fictions is going to be a little literal description of the world that we live in, right? Ah. So in other, in other words... Rigidity of rule seems to be an internal property, like coherence. I don't see how that connects you to the world in any particular way. Well, what you just actually um, uh, proposed is similar to the famous uh, short story by Jorge Luis Borges, The Library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and so, maybe we should actually link to the to the. Yeah, text. that's a wonderful. That's piece. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a really fun story, right? And so the idea, of course, is that there's this library where all possible it contains all possible books written with certain rules. Actually, if I remember correctly, they were written in a particular language or were a particular, you know, with with a, a, a certain alphabets or a certain grammar. But given that, so given those very loose constraints, let's say English and you know the the characters of the of the English language, the rules of the English language, you can write an infinite number of books. Most of them are going to be complete gibberish. Right. 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 <laughs> Um, and but at least one is going to actually, or possibly one, is going to actually tell you, give you a precise description of all past history and all future history. And of course, in in the in the in the short story, uh, there are all these uh, people who waste their entire lives trying to find the, the, the book, <laughs> which of course there's no way to tell which one it is. Right. Because, you know, it could be different from the actual. Uh, uh, the one you're reading may be very accurate, except for a very crucial detail. Yeah, there's one, one fewer hair on your head than you actually yeah, exactly. have, right? <laughs> now, the way I understand, in fact, I actually thought in the past of 
this was this was before uh, reading uh, Smalling. I thought in the past of that of, of Borges Library as a reasonable way to solve the conundrum of mathematical Platonism. That is, to treat language as a sufficiently rigid system. It's not as rigid as mathematics because languages, of course, evolve naturally, yeah. and you know they're not they're not they don't have a logical coherence that you find in mathematical system or or systems or logical systems. But nonetheless, they're rigid enough systems that you can actually use them, of course, as descriptions of the real world. Yeah, that's how yeah. science got started, right? And so, if that's the case, yes, there will be one book in the library that does describe the real world. Now, what I would say then is that natural language, again, similarly to mathematics, massively underdetermines the, the actual physical universe. Uh, and that is because of very similar reasons. That is, uh, it is a coherent system. I mean, we, we try to use language. I mean, even natural language has a high degree of logical coherence. Yeah. Uh, and because otherwise we couldn't, we couldn't use it. I mean, language, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, people, there are, uh, there are all sorts of weird uh, sort of theories about how language arose and why language arose. But one thing we, we can be reasonably sure about is that it arose as a way of communicating things about the world. And that is why languages tend to be somewhat at least logically coherent, because the, the world itself is logically coherent. <laughs> and you, you cannot use a system, you cannot describe the system that is logically coherent in a, using a tool that it's got nothing to do with logic. Right, so I think that your example is a good one, uh, the, the, the language one, but I do think that it, language is, in some sense, a, a sort of borderline or intermediate situation precisely because it is constraining. It's not as constraining as mathematics or logic or the rules of chess, uh, but it is constraining enough that you can, in fact, say, uh, and reasonably so, that, yeah, but I, if, if I write enough random books and put them into the li into Borges library, one of them will actually be the, the final theory of everything. And yeah, that's true. That's but would you then want to say that that book is not invented, but evoked? Well, it's... Um, I mean, the reason I brought up the example is that these are really, in a sense, you're writing fictions, and right. one of them happens to be true. And I was trying to sort of push on this distinction between evocation and invention, right? Right. Um, but notice that in order to do that, you have to move. I mean, I appreciate the point, but in order to, to do that, you have to move to the level of the whole language, right? So I think that one can say, yes, mm. that, that is actually evoked mm. because now you're using the full language, the whole language as your starting point. On the other hand, individual authors uh, like the, you know, Conan Doyle or the authors of Star Trek are working within the language. Yeah. And they're working very locally, and so they're much less determined. In, uh, you know, the yeah. system is much less constrained. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think, well, this is, this is a good first chunk, and I think we're nicely set up to start with philosophy next time. Oh, that's right. Where, that's philosophy, right. Fits, where philosophy fits into the map, why you think it fits into the map in, this play, in these areas, and uh, then we can continue forward from there. Um, yeah. So next time, what philosophy actually is. Yeah, and will you still be in Rome the next time, or are you going to already be back the next time I'll we do this? I'll be in Rome for another month and a half, so I probably we probably do it the same way. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Um, Massimo, I hope you feel better. Thank you. Please once again thank your brother for his hospitality, <laughs> and enjoy your dinner. Thanks very much. All right, take care, my friend. Bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.